0: Gracious God, let these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. There's a certain hazard to being a person of faith today. There's a certain hazard because being a person of faith is difficult where bad theology abounds. Last week I talked a little bit about the bad theology inherent in that time-old phrase, that's just my cross to bear. The cross stands up against that bad background theology. This morning I want to talk about a little bit more of that background theology that just sits in American culture, unquestioned, not always, always up there in the forefront, but in the background. And the gospel asks, questions today about insiders and outsiders. Who is welcome at the table? Who has a place? So today I want to spend a little bit of time with this idea of American exceptionalism. I want to critique American exceptionalism as a theology. It comes with a theological framework, The idea goes back to before our founding as a country, back to John Winthrop and his gang who wanted to come to America to escape the Catholic trappings of England to build a city on a hill. They saw themselves as the exception, as the shining example for the world. That never really went away in America, this idea of exceptionalism. When I speak of exceptionalism, I mean it in a few ways. First, there is the most obvious way, the way that we often talk about American exceptionalism, and the way in which our country thinks of itself both as the world's police and above the law. Uh, America sends people to the International Criminal Court at the Hague. We help to write the accords that establish the ICC, establish the court but we ourselves chose never to become subject to that court's jurisdiction. Our Congress never signed off on the treaties, and so no American will ever be tried as an international war criminal. And America often thinks of itself this way as the exception to the rule. And that exceptionalism, it's not just about what the Senate or the House does, it's not just about what happens in the corridors of Washington. We also helped to author the Paris Climate Agreement. We helped to establish benchmarks for curbing climate change, set bold goals. And yet, it was simple for our current president to quickly undo the promises of the previous administration. Quitting the Climate Change Agreement was not political suicide for this president. That's where we come in. And thank God for young people. Thank God for the young activists, the youth, who keep bringing the climate to the center of the discussion. Because we really are in a place where scientists are making prophecies that sound a lot like Jeremiah. That sound a lot like the fields turning into a desert. We live in worrying times. And America has chosen not to lead. There's an exceptionalism that says, yes, yes, you need to do something about climate change in your country, but we're going to ignore the consensus we helped to build. There's a certain exceptionalism in America when a political leader can get away with such a decision and not be held accountable. That America and exceptionalism to the international rule, it's that first and most obvious sense but it's built on a second sense of exceptionalism, a sense that's as old as our country, if not older. The first understanding relies on the second one. The second aspect of exceptionalism runs deep. It's important to remember that who counts in America has always been a sense of exception within the wider populace. The framers of the Constitution only gave the vote to white, property-owning men They ignored the fact that much of the property that they owned was stolen from Native Americans. Never mind that some of the property that counted when the Constitution was written, it was enslaved African human beings. Never mind that women's labor kept families together, hearths burning and flags flying. Only a certain few, an exception within the wider population counted, had a voice how to vote. The taking of land from indigenous indigenous Americans, I bring it up because it was justified with a theology. There was a theology in the background that said, this group has a destiny, God's given destiny. That's a theological statement. The theft of life, liberty, and labor from enslaved Africans, it was justified with an American theology. I've told you this before, but our own Episcopal Church is culpable. Along with many other churches, our baptismal promises during slavery included a promise made only by slaves to obey their master. There's a theology that is operating in the background of this idea of American exceptionalism. In this idea, in this background, some of the worst abuses in American history were justified with church teaching. This idea that European, white, male, landowning Americans had a special role in God's drama. The rights, even the lives of others, were secondary at best. A certain class of person was deemed exceptional, the worthy few. Finally, there's a third kind of exceptionalism that's a bit new. It's, it's an outgrowth of the original It pays lip service to the value of diversity. The understanding of American exceptionalism has subtly shifted, but only subtly. We still look for exceptions in America. I can't tell you the number of times I have heard, as an openly gay man, well, you may be gay, but you're not one of those gays. At first pass, I understand that the speaker means to pay me a compliment. You're part of the exception, you're like us. You're not other, you're not so different. But I wonder how many others in this congregation have heard a version of this. Well, you're black, but you're not one of those folks out protesting the police. She may be a woman, but she's not a crazy feminist. American exceptionalism has been expanded subtly to allow a few exceptions to the rule. But the rule is still there. A few folks are allowed into the office, diversity hires. A few folks are invited around the table to prove a point. As long as we treat people as the exception to the rule as long as we privilege certain cultural sets of behaviors, particular ways of being, we continue to play out this background theology that God blesses some over others. It's a theology, and it's a dangerous theology in the background of our exceptionalism. And this morning, Jesus offers something else. Jesus offers an understanding of God that is more challenging more daring, and frankly, far more beautiful. Jesus tells two well-known stories today, and the story of the woman who searches her home for the silver coin, but more iconically, the story of the lost sheep. And I I use that word iconically literally. Often Jesus has been depicted through the history of the church carrying that sheep on his shoulders, the shepherd carrying the lost sheep home. We've heard this story, but do we understand Jesus' background? Do we understand the push Jesus is making against the status quo? Let's reread how Jesus started telling these stories. At the very beginning of our section today, Luke writes, The legal experts were grumbling, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's always the lawyers, isn't it? Pause here. Jesus tells the story because the religious lawyers didn't like the folks gathered around his table. And Jesus was inviting outsiders into the party, into the house, in to break bread. And Jesus brought in all the wrong people. It's in response to folks who are offended by Jesus' gathering, by the sinners, the tax collectors, the outcasts he keeps company with, that Jesus says, suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and lost one of them. Wouldn't he leave the 99 in the pasture and search for the lost one until he finds it? Now hold on a second, Jesus. There's an assumption there. Wouldn't he leave the other 99? Think about who Jesus is talking to. Think about who's disputing with him. Would these men of power and wealth, are they the kind who would risk the 99 for the sake of the one? Are they? Remember, this is not an enclosed pasture. This is a long time before the invention of barbed wire. Leaving the flock was dangerous. Would these folks leave the pasture, risk the other sheep? Would they risk the 99 for the sake of the one? I'm not sure they would. I find myself asking if Jesus is preaching about a very different kind of exceptionalism here. To Jesus, no sheep, no citizen, no country, no class, no one is exceptional. To Jesus, everyone matters, every single one. No one is left behind. God cares so much that God will risk the safety and comfort of the many to save the few. Jesus points to a vision of grace, a vision of caring, a vision of love. That vision is what is truly exceptional. Unless all God's flock is accounted for, the work is not done. Friends, we live in a world with a strong background theology, That theology points out the exceptional people. It's a theology that lifts up a few folks and says, see how successful they are. See how wealthy. See their wonderful houses, their kids who somehow got into the best schools. See them? They are those who are blessed by God. We don't often explicitly state that theology, but it's there in the background. It's a theology that, for the sake of lifting up a few insiders, has relied on creating and using outsiders. And this theology plays out in our views about race, about gender. It's a theology that's in the background of our discussions about immigration, about who is entitled a chance at making a better life in the land of the free, the home of the brave. It's in the background around the way that we talk about women, the way that we talk about rights. It's there, quietly, quietly. And for centuries now, this theology has been there in the background, the dominant understanding of Christianity in our country. But the God Jesus preaches about is so much more loving, so much less petty. The God Jesus knows, the God Jesus wants us to embrace, the God Jesus wants us to proclaim, that God requires a different theology, a different understanding. The story of the lost sheep, it's a well-known story, but how well do we know that this is a story about equity, A story about a God who embraces those who have been called sinners. It's a story about a God who chases down the ones who are left behind and brings them to the table. This is a God who does not respect human boundaries. This is a God who loves those that have been told they don't count. This is a God who pursues you, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whoever you love, whatever your backstory. This God chases you down. This God lifts up those who the world would count lost. Jesus God is a God who doesn't leave a soul alone, who can't stand for one, not even one person, to be left out. This beautiful vision of God brings all people, lifts up all people, carries them home. Doubtless, you'll ask me about that final line then. That's great, Mike, you'll say, but then why does Jesus say that the sinner has to change heart and mind? Or in the more traditional language, why does the scripture say the sinner needs to repent? I'm grateful today for this translation we've chosen to use for a while here at Holy Communion, the common English, because it is, it's more common English. I think when we hear that word repent, Very particular ideas come to mind about what sin is and what we need to to ask God's forgiveness for. But the Common English translation translates that word repent. It says, joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who changes both heart and mind. That's what the word repent means, literally. To turn around, to change your heart, to change your mind. And again, it makes me point you back to the beginning of that story to ask, in this gospel, whose hearts and minds is Jesus interested in changing? Is it the people that are gathered around the table? Or is it the self-righteous religious authorities? Does Jesus turn the table here? Are the self righteous religious authorities the ones who are the sinners in the eyes of Jesus? Is it those who would be denied a place at the table? Or are the sinners those who miss the point, those who would deny someone a place? Are the religious authorities the ones who need to change their hearts and minds? If you read the whole story, I think it's pretty clear the time of Jesus, but things aren't so different now. We live in a world with a lot of bogus religious authority, and I would argue that our best hope, our only hope, is better theology. To build our hope on nothing less than Jesus' table-turning vision, this is the question today's gospel leaves us. In a world full of bad theology, theology that hurts, theology that costs lives, in a world full of bad theology, does your theology tell a better story? Does your understanding of God tell a better story? In a world where many believe, many preach, that God blesses the few at the expense of the many, what is your story? What good news do you have to share? I don't think that the answer to bad theology is no theology. I don't think that the answer to bad theology is shutting down the church. That's not it. The answer is better theology. How do we reflect a better theology? How do we help people to know that God doesn't choose an exceptional few? How do we show folks a love that is so exceptional What is so truly exceptional in our world is that God chooses not a few, but each and every person, all of us. And it's said that St. Francis once said, preach the gospel always. When necessary, use words. Episcopalians love that one. Makes it sound like you're off the hook for preaching with words. It's not the case. Sometimes it's necessary. But it's not just the words that count. How do we show folks? How do we help people understand God lifts up the left out? God won't let even one person get lost. How do we help people know that what is truly exceptional in our world is the love, the grace, the mercy of God? How do we show God's exceptional love? Friends, I have to say, I think we have a start here at Holy Communion. This is a table, and this is a religious movement that gathers together a scandalously strange assortment of folk. As we grow as a congregation, how do we keep making room? How do we keep holding space for those the world counts out? How do we keep opening our table wide? And how do we show the wide, loving fellowship of God, not just at church, but in our workplaces, our schools, even our own homes? Do our parties look like Jesus's? Who does your table offend? And whose heart and mind will your table invite to change? Amen.